If you are just joining us today, uh, we are talking about the subject of worry, what it is, how it develops in us, and what we can do in the face of it so that we can lead an even more life-enhancing experience. And uh, if you didn't catch the wonderful messages that were given in this place last week on this subject, I want to just take a moment before I leap ahead into some new content just to review some of the really important concepts that got fleshed out for us in the messages that Tracy and Eric shared with us. The first big idea was all of us worry. Can I hear an amen to that? We all recognize that. I was worried about getting up and having to preach on worry today. Uh, all of us worry uh, over so many different kinds of things in the course of our journey. We, we worry about how we look or how we talk. We worry over our jobs and our junk. We worry over our, our family members and, uh, and our friends. We are concerned about our our finances and our followers. I mean, it, it just goes on and on. The list of areas and spheres of life where worry is part of the nagging experience of our journey uh, just goes on and on. In fact, we even worry over things we can't quite name. We just know we feel kind of worried about things at moments. And I read in a recent study that worrying has now topped out the list of, of um, concerns that people express about behaviors or patterns of living that they know they shouldn't be dominated by, but somehow feel like they helplessly are. Uh, alongside of, of things like procrastinating and overeating and, uh, and binge media consumption, uh, things that people sense, you know, I shouldn't be so totally into that. Worry is at the very top of that list as something that people sense they shouldn't do, but nonetheless find themselves doing. I would have to put it close to the top of my own list, frankly, maybe at the top of my list. I already had one um, largely sleepless night this week as my mind just churned over and over and over again about a variety of, of concerns. So, so if you are a worrier by, by nature, or even if it's just an occasional experience for you, you are in very uh, good company as you gather uh, in this circle today. The second thing we learned about worry is that it, it, it is a... Um, a behavior or a pattern in our life that is supposed to shrink the more that we grow in Christ. Um, there, there are very few things that Jesus sort of very emphatically says, don't do. Just don't be about that. But worry is on that list of prohibitions. Jesus is very, very clear that he wants to banish worry from our lives. And we heard it in the scripture that was just read. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Don't worry about it. Do not worry about what you'll eat or drink or about your body, uh, what you will wear. And there has to be some part of most of us who, in hearing those words of Jesus, think, are you kidding? I mean, that seems inconceivable that I would no longer worry. That maybe even seems irresponsible. I mean, if I don't worry... <laughs> If, if, if I'm not thinking about this stuff, it's not going to get done. These issues are not going to get addressed. And that's why I think it's also helpful to remember the third big idea that got advanced last week and understand that, that worry is not the same as fear or anxiety. Jesus is not saying, I never expect you to feel anxious about anything. I, I, I never expect you to feel any kind of fear about it 
anything. Let me remind you, as we heard last week, it is okay to be afraid sometimes. Uh, fear is actually an extremely positive emotion in, in most cases. It, it's like the flashing red light at the railway crossing that is indicating a genuine present threat. When you see that flashing light, you should know I'm not moving forward. I, I'm on full alert. Fear is a God-given emotion that is meant to wake us up and to prepare us to, to fight a threat or to flee from a threat. So fear is a creative emotion. It is also fine to be anxious at times. Uh, it's a good thing to be anxious at times. Anxiety is sort of like the yellow light on your dashboard that, that alerts you to the fact that there might be a problem in the system someplace. Right? Anxiety is, is trying to wake us up. It's a God-given gift to wake us up to the, to the reality that there might be an issue that needs to be addressing. So you, your spider sense starts tingling. You know, I haven't heard the kids in quite a while. I wonder what they're into. You know? Um, or it, that you feel this kind of tension in your stomach. You're watching TV and you're thinking, you know, did I really take care of that assignment I was supposed to get done by tomorrow, you know, that, that kind of tension within you is a very helpful thing. It's alerting you to, to take note of your condition, to check your systems. But, but as both Tracy and Eric reminded us last week, worry is something very different than either fear or anxiety. And, and to stay with my car metaphor here for a moment, worry is like someone honking their horn insistently or revving their engine in the midst of a traffic jam. How many of you have ever done that? Have you, you just, you're finally you're just so frustrated, you know, in the middle of the traffic jam. It's a choice that we make to express our tension, our discomfort, our displeasure with a situation, but it doesn't change the situation, does it? I, I mean, you've been next to that crazy guy or gal who just was honking away in the... And you think, you, you know, are you, what an idiot. I mean, all you're doing is getting yourself more upset and you're bugging everybody else around you. And worry can be very much like that because traffic is a fact of life, right? It's you that needs adjusting. Worry, that, that kind of relentless haunting sense of urgency about the panic of life, the disappointments of life, this is a gentle invitation, maybe a blaring one at times, to make some personal adjustments. Now, as we said last week, sometimes it takes a medical adjustment to address worry, right? Sometimes uh, the only thing that is is going to fix that horn or that revving engine is, is help from a medical technician because it's gotten stuck through no fault of, of, of your own or of that other person that wrestles with this sort of chronic level of worry. It's, it's an actual biophysical uh, concern, and, and it will take trained technicians to help adjust that. For most of us, however, this honking and revving of our engines is something that can actually be repaired at home, okay? It's something that we can do. Uh, we can even help each other uh, with along the journey. 
And in last week's message, Tracy and Eric pointed out that what may be needed, first and foremost, is for you to adjust your awareness of God's presence and care. Uh, Worry may be an invitation for you to think harder about the reality of who God is and his presence and his care for you. If you really look around you, you know, what are the odds of even this planet we're sitting on, standing on, snowing on, uh, even, even being here? I mean, the more and more scientists are learning about the universe, you know, back in the Carl Sagan days where they said, gosh, there's probably a million other planets out there with all kinds of life, the more they're learning, the more they're going, oh my gosh, the conditions that it took to create just this one planet are so astronomically inconceivable. It's a miracle that we're even alive. Just think about the chain of circumstances down through the generations that it took for the particular genetic material that is you to come into being. Think about that. Think about all the systems that are set up to nurture the life of the birds and the flowers. And remember the even more amazing graces and synchronicities and God incidences and providences of various kinds that have sustained your life all the way through today. For you are much more valuable to God than you may think, says Jesus. You're more valuable than you recognize to him. You're a beloved child of the Heavenly Father. You're not dust in the wind. You're not lint on the face of the earth. You're a precious child to your Heavenly Father. And he he brought you into being, and he has been uh, sustaining you through life's journey. He's watching over you. He... He's willing to bleed and and die for you. He, if you drop dead today, you walk out, you're shoveling, your heart finally gives out, right? He will resurrect you, right? He will resurrect you to new life. So, So why are you hammering the horn? Why are you revving your engine so much? Trust in God's presence and in God's care for you. What might come off of your worry list if you really trusted in his presence and his care? It's also important to remember, says Jesus, that your father actually knows what you need. You know, that's sometimes what's driving the the worry, is a sense that, gosh, nobody's seeing the needs here. Right? Nobody else is seeing, I've got to be passionate, obsessive about this. Nobody else gets the needs here. But your Father in heaven, he knows what you need, says Jesus. I want to suggest to you that, that, that one of the things that, that we have to look at as we deal with the subject of worry in our life is whether we actually have some confusion about what we really need. Uh, I I know we have a lot of wants, right? We want to be thinner, we want to be taller, we want to be richer. 
we want our child to get into a prestigious school, and we want to go up the career ladder. And we want everybody to like us, and yet we also want to be able to be who we are, and we want to live as free from pain as possible, and we want to experience as little consequence from our bad choices as we possibly can, and we worry over all of these kinds of wants. But if you think about it, all of these things are what you might call first world wants. Right? These are, these are first world wishes. These are things which, if you actually found yourself in a place of severe deprivation, might really drop off the worry list. If you found yourself with cancer, if you lost your job, if someone you love was lost to you, if your kid got really sick, so many of the things that we're haunted by, jangling about, honking and revving over, would slip away because it turns out so many of the things that are occupying our attention there are not, in fact, needs. They're just wants. So maybe one way to reduce your worry list is to adjust your sense of need. Right? Examine what it is that you feel like you really, really need. When I find myself wanting a, a seven-layer cake life, as I so often do at times, I, 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 I have this wish that I can just blow, and all of these desires will be granted for me. I probably, in those moments, need to be reminded that I, can on, that I really only actually need daily bread. I don't need the seven-layer cake. I only need daily bread. I, I need enough strength for today. I need, I need some hope for tomorrow, as the old hymn says. I need enough grace to get through the next 24 hours, right? I need, I need just, just enough faith, just enough hope, just enough love to sustain me till the sun goes down and I can rest my head. And I need somebody to take care of the world while I'm sleeping because I need the sleep. And I'm starting to think that my greatest need in life is, is actually, as Jesus put it, to learn to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. The older I get, and I'm getting pretty old, I, I, am, I am thinking more and more that what I need most, and maybe what my own loved ones need most, is to have experiences, whether they're hard experiences or happy experiences or harried experiences, that succeed in developing a character that is more like God's and that teaches me to live more and more by the values of the kingdom. And problems can bring those things that, that can be the classroom for that as easily as, as pleasures. In fact, a lot more easily than pleasures. So what on your current worry list might start to evaporate if you saw growing in the character of God and in the values of his kingdom as your number one need. Your really big need. Before I let you go today, I want to just think with you about one more strategy for dealing with the volume of worry in your life. And um, this one requires that you adjust your attitude toward the future toward the future. I suspect that one of the 
other reasons that many of us are haunted by worry is that we spend a lot of our time and our energy walking around in Tomorrowland. How many of you have ever been to Tomorrowland at one of D Disney's theme parks? Right, okay. And if, you, if you're sitting next to a kid and they didn't raise their hand or a younger person, get them to, to Disney World sometime soon, right? Well, if you've been there to Tomorrowland, then you know that this is a this is an environment, a place that gives us a genuine preview of what the future will look like. I went there when I was nine. I will never forget it. It was killing me. We spent so much time in Frontierland, and I wanted to get to Tomorrowland. I could see the tip of the rocket ship, you know, over the top of the other things. I didn't want to go to It's a Small World. I wanted to be where the, where the cool stuff was, where the future was going. And when I got there, it was really great because it told me what it was going to be like when I got older. Right? We were all going to be riding around in monorails a lot. We, we, would be, we wouldn't have to worry about traffic. We'd have jetpacks. And we'd be zipping all over the place in those things. Right? We would probably be beaming occasionally to the really distant locations. You know, I'm going to go, I think I'll hit Bali for a day or two. Mm, beam me up. Right? We, were, we had... We had such an incredible future. All of these things were going to you know, happen, certainly by that distant future date of 2000. I remember the year 2000. It's going to be really good in the year 2000. Some of us live with an equally vivid, clear picture of what the future holds. And it may be an idealized picture. Some of us, it's, it's, a, it's this idealized sense of the ways things should be, ought to be, are going to be, and that's what we worry over. You know, we are just so determined to drive towards that future. We are worrying about getting ready for that future. We are worried about getting everybody else on board for that future that we can see so clearly. We are are concerned about whether we're moving fast enough towards that particular future, and so we're honking, and we're revving our engines. We're trying to move the traffic in front of us so that tomorrow will come. That's, that's true of some of us. Some of us, on the other hand, we, the Tomorrowland we have is what I would call the Johnny Depp Tomorrowland. It's a nightmare Tomorrowland, right? It is a scary kind of Tomorrowland that's in our heads. In this future that we can see, the sky is falling, right? Or we're falling and falling and falling. And, or, or, or it's like the nightmare where we, sh we show up naked and we're found out. Oh my gosh, I, I didn't prepare or we're not ready or, or people are asking stuff of us we know we should be able to deliver and we can't deliver on that. Or, or, or everything that could possibly go wrong goes wrong. Ask somebody before you leave here today, before you leave the room you're in today, ask somebody which kind of Tomorrowland do they tend to spend the most time in. Regardless of whether you tend to, to, to focus on the more idealized or the more nightmarish, awfulized picture, it's just amazing how emotionally powerful and psychologically influential, controlling even, are these visions of the way things are going to be. But ask the people who invested in monorail technology or in bomb shelters in the 60s how they feel now about 
predictions for the future. That is not to say that we should be passive when it comes to, to being prepared, right, for tomorrow. Um, it's not saying that we should just sort of check our thoughts uh, completely about what may be ahead. In one of our scripture lessons for today, for example, the apostle James make it, makes it really clear that if there's something constructive that we can do, emphasis on the word constructive, to ready ourselves for tomorrow, then we ought to attend it. In the fourth chapter of his famous letter, James writes, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, well, it's a sin for them. It's, it's an error. It's a, it's a miss. If you know something good that you ought to do now that might actually help downstream, that's something worth doing. But James also suggests that there's an even greater danger in thinking that we know what tomorrow will bring and that we are responsible for commanding and controlling that and, and, and thinking that our work and our worry is going to move that future. And so James says, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, we will spend a year there, carry on business and make money, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. You don't really have any idea all that may be happening just tomorrow. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live. If it is his will, we will do this or that. Which is to say that only God truly lives in Tomorrowland. Only God does. He's the only one that fully shapes its reality. And for you and me, Tomorrow never comes. <laughs> never gets here. We only have today. There's only the choices that we make today. There's only the, the opportunity to trust our Heavenly Father and try to cooperate with His work as the best we can today, letting go of our worry for all the other days. In a recent book, pastor and author Kyle Eidelman confesses his discovery of this truth, and with this, I'd like to move us towards a close. When I started a new church in Los Angeles, writes Eidelman, I found that I was just overwhelmed with pressure and stress. I was working more than 70 hours a week, he says. My wife would ask me to take a day off, and I would say, oh, I can't, I can't. I wasn't sleeping at night. I started to take sleeping pills. And when the church was about a year old, I woke up in the night. I had this really strange sense that God was laughing at me. He was laughing at me. And I finally got an answer to this question about why he was laughing at me. And here's how it happens, he says. Here's how it happens. When we moved into our current house, I saved the heaviest piece of furniture 
for last. It was the desk from my office, the last thing to move in. And as I was pushing and pulling the desk with all of my might, my four-year-old son came over and asked if he could help. And so together, we started sliding this massive piece of furniture across the floor. And he was pushing and he was grunting as we inched our way along. And after a few minutes, my son stopped pushing and he looked up and said to me, Dad, you're in my way. And then he tried to push the desk by himself. And of course, it didn't budge. My son's name wasn't Clark Kent. It was then that, the, that it hit me, says Edelman. I realized that my child thought he was doing, actually doing, all the work instead of me. And and I just could not help but laugh. <laughs> and I recalled that middle-of-the-night incident, and I suddenly knew why God was laughing at me. I thought I was pushing the desk. I thought I was the one pushing the future, pushing the traffic, pushing all the important stuff. I know that's ridiculous, but instead of recognizing God's power, writes Seidelman, and his strength, I just started to think it really all depended on me. How many of you can find yourself in that story? I know I can. Author Amy Simpson writes, when we worry about the future, we're usually imagining a world where God is nearly or completely absent. It's a, we have this exaggerated sense of its darkness. It's a place where bad things are almost sure to happen. And we discount the active presence of God in this world. A God who is stemming the tide of darkness and self-destruction that we seem to be so eager to throw ourselves into and who is acting for our benefit. We forget that with a loving and powerful God enacting his redemptive plan, the odds of something good happening are always at least as great as the odds of tragedy. There's usually some truth, she says, to what worries us. Yes, those bad things could really happen. Yes, terrible things are happening all over the world. But worry never tells you the whole truth. In fact, actually, it shuts you down to the whole truth, worry does. You, you can't hear the whole truth when you're honking and revving. You, you, you just are too inwardly folded. And the whole truth includes always what God is doing. His power, the, the beauty of the world around us, the surprising kindness of even sin-riddled people, our mysterious ability to endure far more than we're prepared for, and the fact that I'm actually not responsible for how everything turns out. The Bible makes it clear, right, Simpson, that the future is not our domain. We have no claim on it, right to it, knowledge of it, or assurance that it will ever even arrive. The future belongs only to God. But, and here's the good news, that same God is so good and beautiful. That same God is, has such greater gifts in store for us 
than we can even dare to imagine. And with him and in him and because of him, our unknowable future is bright. Which is why Jesus can say so confidently and so passionately toward you and me, do not worry about your life. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Cool your engines. Lay off the horn. It won't get you down the road any faster or any better. And here's the wonderful news. I am right here with you now. And guess what? I am already there. Would you pray with me? Eternal God, awaken us afresh to your presence and to your care for us. Recalibrate our sense of what we truly need. Adjust our attitude toward the future so that we can simply walk in trust and faithfulness with you today. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.